Hello and welcome, I'm Damien Barr and you are listening to the podcast of my live literary salon. Thank you so much for dropping by. You are about to hear an interview between me and Douglas Stewart, who has written the novel of the year, or one of them, Shuggy Bane. Now, I got sent a proof of it and it was one of those books you're sort of so excited about getting it. Um, all about Glasgow, all about the 1980s, all about a gay boy who had struggled in his relationship with his alcoholic mother and it spoke directly to me, which you'll know all about if you've read my memoir, Maggie and Me. So this was a book I hoped I would love and I did. And the interview you're about to hear is between me and Douglas and it's his first interview for the novel in the UK and well, Let's just say, it's doing well. He's been shortlisted for the Booker, fingers crossed, the National Book Award and just about every other award going, and deservedly so. It's really hard to believe that this is a first novel, uh, but it is, and this is his first conversation about it. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, and thank you for listening. Tonight's book, The Incredible Shuggy Bane, is all about Glasgow, the city, the people, its unique charms and its particular problems. It's hard to believe that this is Douglas Stewart's first novel. It is nothing short of astonishing. The language, the characterization, the world, it is, in a word, gallus, pure gallus. I finished rereading it today and I was crying again. I just sat there reading. It is astonishing. Shuggy Bain is a wee boy growing up in 1980s Glasgow. His world is his mum, Agnes Bain, who's very glamorous. She's sort of like, imagine Liz Taylor if she was done up from the Barras exclusively. Not Paddy's Market, but the Barras. And if that's too niche a reference, we're going to go much more niche tonight. Shuggy is trying to save his mum and find himself in a city that is both bleak and dazzling. The novel will break your heart, that's exactly what it did to me, only to mend it again bigger and stronger. It's the world that I wrote about in Maggie and Me that I grew up into, but here it's brought to life in autobiographical fiction. Douglas was born and brought up in Glasgow. He now lives in New York, which is where he joins us from now. Douglas, how are you? I'm very well. Thank there you, you are. <laughs> Two Glaswegians on opposite sides of the world. And so it begins, and so it begins. I know that you are the true Glaswegian in this conversation. I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. It's amazing to be able to like finally bring Shuggy home and, and this is what he's meant to be. And so this is huge for me, so thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. I want everybody who's, who's watching tonight to be able to go away and talk about this book. The passion that I have for it is, is tremendous and it really I said in my introduction it does always feel like you've written this book for me <laughs> does it's like I'm trying to think of a novel that could be better suited to my key interests can't think of one I mean all it's missing really is chickens if you added chickens that would be it for me um, it is an astonishing piece of fiction and it's out here in August now can you start by reading us um, reading us a couple of wee bits from the book absolutely um, the passage I would love to read to you actually comes from the beginning of the book. It's the first mm -hmm. time our heroine, Agnes Bain, who is the very proud, uh, vain working class mother of the Bain family. And, and as David 
uh, this is a family that are uh, sort of coming apart while the city around them, 1980s Glasgow, is also starting to come apart. But this is where we meet Agnes and we start, it's from the very beginning of the book and we start to see how she's chafing at the smallness of her life. Agnes Bain pushed her toes into the carpet and leaned out as far as she could into the night air. The damp wind kissed her flush neck and pushed down inside her dress. It felt like a stranger's hand, a sign of living, a reminder of life. With a flick, she watched her cigarette doubt fall, the glowing embers dancing 16 floors down onto the dark forecourt below. She wanted to show the city this claret velvet dress. She wanted to feel a little envy from strangers, to dance with men who held her proud and close. Mostly, she wanted to take a good drink, to live a little. With a stretch of her calves, she leaned her hip bone on the window frame and let go of the ballast of her toes. Her body tipped down towards the city lights and her cheeks flushed with blood. She reached her arms out to the lights and for a brief moment she was flying, but no one noticed the flying woman. She thought about tilting further then, dared herself to do it. How easy it would be to kid herself that she was flying until it became only falling and she broke herself on the concrete below. The high-rise flat she still shared with her mother and father pressed in against her. Everything in the room behind her felt so small, so low-ceilinged and stifling, so payday to mass day. It was a life bought on tick, with nothing that ever felt owned outright. To be 39 and have her husband and her three children all crammed together in her mammy's flat gave her a feeling of failure. Him, her man, who when he shared her bed now seemed to lie on the very edge, made her feel angry with the little promises of better things. Agnes wanted to put her foot through it all, or to scrape it back like it was spoiled wallpaper, to get her nail under it and rip it all away. With a bored slouch, Agnes fell back into the stuffy room and felt the safety of her mammy's carpet below her feet again. The other women hadn't looked up. Peevishly, she scraped the needle across the record player. She clawed at her hairline and turned the volume up too loud. Come on, please, just the one we dance. No yet, spat Nan Flanagan. She was feverish in arranging silver and copper coins into neat piles. I'm just about to pimp out a lot of you. Rini Sweeney rolled her eyes and held her cards close. You've one filthy mind. Well, don't say I didn't warn you. Nan bit the end off a slab of fried fish and sucked the grease from her lips. When I'm done taking all your menage money at these cards, you're gonna have to go home and fuck that bag of soup bones you call a husband for more. No chance. Rini made a lazy sign of the cross. I've been sitting on it since Lent and I've no intention of letting them get at it until next Christmas. She pushed a fat golden chip into her mouth. I once held up so long I got a new colour telly in the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> that is so brilliant. <laughs> I, when I read that, I felt like I was back home, sitting at my mum's feet, you know, when she was sitting around with her pals and they were going through the catalogue and they were talking about what they were going to order. Your ear for dialogue is incredible. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. It's been absolutely brilliant. Well, let's start off um, with, 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 with Agnes, because, I mean, the book is called Shuggy Bean, but really, you know, you say Agnes is the, is the hero of the book, and she is in many ways. The book is about, she's the sun, really, that all these planets revolve around, um, and minor moons, most people are minor moons to Agnes. Um, she is, as you describe her there, very glamorous, but she's also very dangerous to herself. I mean, she's almost suicidal, isn't she? That first, that's the first time we meet her, and she's thinking about jumping 
yeah. and she's thinking about leaping. So, so tell us about her um, as a character, how you, how you conceived her and where she comes from. Yeah, um, so you're, you're right. I mean, the book is focused on Agnes. It's really a portrait of her and looking at her family around her. We see the Bain family as, um, just as they sort of come to be in 1980s Glasgow, they're living in the Sight Hill Tower Blocks, mm -hmm. uh, which still at the time was still a proudly working class, great place to live uh, before it sort of fell into its decay. But Agnes's husband is philandering with her Damien and just for the people who haven't read the book yet, um, he's sleeping essentially with a lot of her friends. And as a taxi driver, he's sort of using his taxi to go across the city and actually philandering is too nice of a word for what he does. I was going to say, that's quite a classy word. Sh Shug, the, the yeah. father of Shuggy, is a shagger. Shuggy is a shagger. Let's just say that. I mean, that is the easiest way to put it, is it not? He is a shagger. He's a, <laughs> a shagger. He's a terrible shagger. He is. Uh, and so, essentially, as Agnes, we see her here, and she's just sort of beginning on the, prefaces, uh, the precipice of descending into her addiction, her alcoholism, which really yeah. is the thing that consumes the book and consumes everyone, really burns everyone around her, yeah. as is sort of shagging around. Um, and so, eventually, he abandons Agnes, um, and that really sort of starts her descent into, into some darkness. And we really see how far everyone in Agnes's life go, shuggy first and foremost, who is her youngest son to sort of love and save his mother. And it's that sort mm. of thing that children have. But Agnes, the inspiration for Agnes is, I'm the queer son of a mother who lost her own battle with addiction. And so Agnes really is someone incredibly close to my heart. It's not, this is not a memoir, it is a work of fiction. But um, I write about addiction and I write about that love, um, sort of channeling a lot of inspiration from my own life. But also, growing up in Glasgow at the time, there was a lot of women who were disintegrating around me. And so it's not necessarily uh, a reflection of just my mother. It's a lot of women and how they were feeling. And, um, you know, I was sort of talking the other day about how sometimes in Glasgow, sometimes at home, it was hard to tell when a good time stopped being a good time and became a bad time. Or when mm -hmm. someone led into really having a problem with alcohol. But for me, addiction was always an incredibly social thing um, mm -hmm. because it brought a lot of other uh, alcoholics around the house and my mother was always, always trying to turn it into some kind of party. And so wanting to set Agnes on the page was really about how much I sort of loved these women, sort of how closely I watched them as a kid. Mm. Yeah, you can tell reading it that the person who's written this has been in these fuggy, close, frantic rooms where you know, at one point you describe it's a, it's a Hugmanay party and Shuggy walks in and he said, the evening is already sliding down. You know, there's a kind of franticness in there, um, which is about people escaping their lives. Um, Agnes very much wants, she feels close, she feels hemmed in, she's bigger than the world around her. She's bigger than the role that's been given her as a woman, as a working class woman, as a woman in that place and at that time. And it's so interesting to me how powerful she is because she's absolutely not a victim, is she, at all? I mean, she, she, she's, she's fighting, but she's not a victim. Yeah, and actually her destruction is her own, right? And so yeah. we, I wanted to be careful in the book. A lot of terrible things happen to her and she falls in love with a lot of wrong men, but I wanted yeah. to be careful that her agency is her own, as I've always known it. Um, but it is true, it's about this sort of story. Agnes is the mother and Shuggy is the young queer son. And it's about how they both navigate the narrow world we have in this working class man's world. Everything is dominated um, 
by sort of men in this in this way and so they're both in a way an outsider within that and Agnes as you say is much bigger than this yeah. and um, it actually took me about 10 years to write the book and when I first started writing the book Damien I didn't necessarily understand Agnes fully because I was too young of a person I think yeah, yeah. and I think only as you sort of this is a depressing thing to say but I think as you sort of hit your 40s and you um and you start to like survey your life and think, is this what it is? Is this all that it will be? Then I started to have a lot more empathy and sympathy with Agnes because mm. really she just feels trapped by the limitations of her life. Mm. She has big dreams, but they're very realistic dreams. She wants quite small things for her family. You know, she longs for a front door of her own, which sort of growing up in a high rise flat or in a council house is a very sort of um, humble thing to want. Um, yeah. you know, be able to buy the things she wants when she wants to buy them without putting them away. The scene I just read you at a card party in the Sight Hill Towers then sort of descends into like a frenzy around a Freeman's catalogue or a Kay's catalogue. And so Agnes wants very realistic things that, that we know because we know the history of Glasgow are going to be denied to her as everyone is start to put out to work, put out of work, yeah. out of employment. Um, you, I, I want to touch on everything that you've just said, but I'm going to start off by talking about how it's a working class man's world, because it very, it very much is, but it's a world that's in flux. Shuggy, when he drives his taxi, says he's looking through the windscreen and he sees Glasgow is changing. He said it's losing his purpose. Even the men are becoming less masculine. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's, it's creating these huge ructions and tensions um, where these gender roles are being challenged, they're being, they're being overturned. Um, and, you know, Shug, the taxi driver, is horrified to think that he might not have control over Agnes, he might not have control over his family, he might not have control over his son, who, by the way, is turning out a bit weird, and that needs to be nipped in the bud. Um, so I, I, I wondered if you could talk about that, that moment of change in Glasgow um, as, as, as the city and as the working-class male character of it um, is changing, and, and how that character affects the men. Yeah. the women and the children. Absolutely. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a working class man's city, but I've actually always known it be run by women because I think mm. I'm a single mother and I've always known the strength of the, the true strength of the city um, to come from women. I think sometimes yeah. through them dealing with what they've been given or yeah. dealing with the mess that um, they sometimes inherit. Mm -hmm. inherit uh, but, you know, I came of age in a city when really... Um, it was just an expected thing that we would go into the trades of our fathers or we would sort of have a job for life or we would just always be useful young men. And so mm -hmm. we almost didn't question it of that class. Mm -hmm. And so all the 80s when, you know, my brother-in-law was put out of work at the shipbuilding, when the coal mine that I grew up around was closed down, there was just nowhere for the men to turn. Mm -hmm. It was an incredibly narrow place emotionally for men to sort of exist in, right? Yeah. And I think Orr writes beautifully about it in her Motherwell book. When she yes, talks an incredible memoir. Yeah, rejecting Ravenscraig, actually, or rejecting the feet of it. Um, so it was already an incredibly narrow place to be. And then I was really surprised when, I knew how it felt intimately from the inside, but when I looked at the figures, I was surprised to see that under Thatcher, um, unemployment in the country was about 14%, but within Glasgow, it went to about 24%. Mm -hmm. And so it gave you a sort of an idea of just how hopeless the housing scheme I grew up on felt. Um, you know, so what really happened there was sort of families just started to come apart. Um, I think the general traditional gender roles no longer held. 
and women were trying to really sort of cobble it together. And so although I'm writing it against the backdrop of a man's city, it's a book that focuses mostly on women. Yeah. Really, Agnes obviously being uh, the protagonist of the book. I just really wanted to show how the cause of what was happening to the men was affecting the women and how they were trying to yeah. cope. But, it but you do also show how it affects the men. And I, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about this book is that you show these men um, regretting their violence sometimes or not regretting it and becoming calcified by it and being, you know, so sometimes you're showing it, sometimes you're telling it. But I, I think what, you, what you're careful to avoid is this kind of, you know, man good dynamic, woman bad dynamic. You acknowledge the flaws and the challenges that they're all having to face. But undoubtedly, the women in the book, I think, are the, the strongest characters. And I, I absolutely recognised so many of them. For me, Agnes is a cross between a woman, the woman who grew up next door to me, um, who in the language of the book is an alky, and my own stepmother, Mary the Canary, who was a who was a, a, a sluice nurse by day and a country western singer by night. So, so there's, there's, you know, Agnes, I, I know Agnes, you know, but what I think is incredible is, is that anybody who picks this book up is, is going to get to know her. Another thing I want to, to ask you before we, we went a bit more into you and your story, um, talking about the city, for people who don't know Glasgow or the west of Scotland, you know, they might be a bit mystified by all this talk of Protestants and Catholics. Hmm. But it is really important, isn't it, to understand that Agnes is a papist, she is a Catholic, um, and Shug is a vain, self-obsessed prod, um, and so therefore Shuggy, the boy, is a halfer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so just talk to us a wee bit about, about that, that dynamic um, and what, what it means to people who might be looking at it just going, what? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And so you're right. So it is essentially, uh, Shug and Agnes would get married in the 70s when this sort of, even though it's both forms of Christianity, this sort of Protestant Catholic thing was still incredibly taboo. Being a working class, a predominantly working class city, you know, the influx of Irish immigration at the turn of the 20th century, all through the 19th century, 18th, 20th century, um, brought with it Catholicism to what was essentially a Protestant city. And then with that, um, obviously there was sort of, when they came, they were undercutting wages, they were um, sort of ghettoized in a way. And so the city is often organized into housing schemes that sort of separate Protestants and Catholics. And by the time I'd become a young man in the 1970s and the 1980s, I don't quite understand why you hate Catholics or why you hate Protestants, but um, I'm sort of indoctrinated into the idea that you do. And so, and it sort of, it's a very- So what are you? I'm a halfer myself. You're the halfer. Okay. So am I. I'm a halfer as well. So Yeah. And so, and fascinating. And it happens in very micro ways. So there's even sort of just what you would call casual bigotry within the home, where your father would say something to your mother or your granny would say something to your father. And so there's that sort of sense of resentment because although they're absolutely the same religion, I think there was a sense of Catholics being slightly more upstanding, slightly more righteous. They were suffering a little bit harder. They were more about family. And there was a sort of sense of um, selfishness to Protestantism. It was slightly seen as a little bit uh, more secular. Um, And it was shinier in a way. And so there was just a lot of resentment that wasn't born from a lot of fact. And the funny thing that always sort of in looking now, I'm an immigrant. I live in New York, but in looking back about it, I'm always floored at the capacity to hate. I'm also floored at the capacity to hate something that's just like you. 
Um, really the division is minuscule. And the characters in the book are struggling in all the same ways. Um, there's no difference between them. These are white people who are working class who are struggling, and yet they still manage to find those hairline fractures to separate themselves further. And so sectarianism permeates all sort of like all levels of your life as a young man and as an adult. I mean, my own mother, when she married a Protestant, her family didn't come to the wedding. And so it's a small thing. But Same. Yeah, it's such a big thing. And then as you grow up within Glasgow, I was expected to fight in a gang um, on the behalf of the Deniston monks and no one would ever want me in a gang. But because of the street I lived on and the school I went to, I was expected to sort of participate in that. Meanwhile, I'm going home every night to a Catholic mother. And yeah. so it's, there's a tribalist thing to it. And then, of course, um, one of the big things in the book is actually looking at the Orange March, which happens mm. summer in Glasgow. And I was staggered to learn that Glasgow has the second largest Orange March outside of Belfast. And we know what sort of religious troubles bring to not have Northern Ireland. And so... I want to talk about, you, you talked there um, in the reading about Agnes being at this uh, card game. They were playing at the Minaj, which is, you know, I sort of, it's hard to describe to people from the outside. It's like a kind of credit club run by women where they buy domestic things, clothes, food, stuff like that. So a credit union, really, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, the Provy Man. Um, but there were so many things that I recognised from my own childhood. Adults taking a knife and opening the coin meter to get the 50 pences out for the gas and electricity or the meter behind the TV So if you don't put 50 pence in the telly program goes off and it it stops um, There you describe in a brilliant moment that the mothers the math of mothers the mother's math where women are trying to think well If I go without this, what can I give to him? What can I give to her? There's a great deal of poverty um, and I, you don't romanticise it, and I, I'm very, mu I'm very much against that. And it's also not, it's also not poverty porn. Um, you just describe it in a very real way. But one of the things that, that comes out of it that I, that I have not seen portrayed before in fiction is the idea, and you do it on the very first page. You talk about how people um, who've experienced poverty, um, unkindness, have a particular kind of kindness themselves. And that's something that you really do see in Glasgow, don't you? People with absolutely nothing, given all that they've got. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, the book is about poverty and it's about people mm. trying to survive. There's an echo throughout the book. Um, even Agnes, who is judged unfairly by her very staunchly Catholic mother for most of the book. Um, mm. Halfway through the book, uh, her mother's been very critical of her as she slides into addiction. And as she runs around with a Protestant. And then mm. by the halfway through the book, I wanted to show a scene just to show that actually her mother is a little bit of a hypocrite because she had also yeah. done whatever it takes to survive. And then the, the book bookends with Shuggy, just a focus on Shuggy. And Shuggy mm. is a way an echo of that. But, mm. you know, I speak a lot, especially in America, about sort of sometimes people perceive it as people being good people or bad people, and they're mm. not. What they yeah. really, in truth, is sort of reacting to the circumstances they have and taking yeah. the most of, of, of what's available to them. And as a kid, um, you know, myself, who was raised on a Monday book and a Tuesday book, which is essentially right. government benefits, but the grand total, I think, was about 60 pounds a week. If you're lucky, $60, about 45 pounds, 50 pounds. Mm. Uh, poverty is really, um, poverty is really the gripping factor that stops Agnes from really being able to get better. And so in order to do that, I had to just 
in order to portray that to people who maybe hadn't seen it, what I wanted to do as an author was actually sort of step out of the book a little bit and just mm -hmm. make sure you're in the room with Agnes as she tried to burst the meter, as she tried to make two pounds go around, as she had to make that mother's math decision. Because the best I can really do with that is just show how it was mm. without sort of filtering it or packaging it or trying to, or trying to be too literary about it. Why did you write a novel and not a memoir? Uh, I mean, for many, many reasons. Um, the book is highly fictionalized. I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I did grow up in Glasgow and I did lose my mother to addiction and I was around all of that for my entire life. But for me, I think what I wanted to do in many ways was I was embracing the creativity that fiction allows you. Um, it was a way to sort of turn uh, some of the characters way up. It was a way to turn some of them down. Um, I think with a memoir, you have to be so factual and you have to be so uh, close to really what happened that my motivation for writing the book was much more about sort of imagining these characters and really creating them and setting them on the page. Mm. And one of the things I love most, I'm a huge Tennessee Williams fan, so I'm a huge fan of dialogue. Um, you're very good at it. Yeah, and in a memoir you have to be very careful with that because of course you're trying to record what happened or stay as close, yeah. stay as close to it. Whereas in fiction, you, the world's your oyster and that was often uh, part of the decision. Did you ever try and write it as memoir, or were you, or did you make the transition to a novel, or did you? Was it from the very beginning? I'm always going to do it as a novel. It was always as a novel. Um, I think what happened is I wrote it out of uh, not out of uh, chronology at the beginning, so I actually captured the scenes as I thought about them or as I imagined them, and some of them are, to be honest with you, Damien, some are, are very accurate and absolute uh, remembrances of what happened. So yeah. Um, they sort of balance in that, but I knew I was creating, I was first of all just trying to capture the scene because actually when I first started writing the book about 10 years ago, I wouldn't allow myself to believe it was a book um, because I felt like if I sat down and I said to myself, you're going to write a book, then I would be intimidated by it and it would become far too much to handle. And as a class kid, I was already so intimidated. I was already too much on the outside. Um, and so I got through it however I could. And I found when I sat down and I started to capture the scenes on the page, um, it just started to flow out of me. Um, and my problem with the book actually wasn't about getting it onto the page, it was about keeping it on the page. Because the very first draft of the book, I think was about 900 pages single spaced. And yeah, that's too long. That's, right. <laughs> that's just too long. That's just too damn long, yeah. <laughs> it was a nightmare to edit and to manage and to handle. But it was such a pleasure to write. Um, yeah. And a big part of also writing it, I think, was sort of, I feel often like two very different people. Um, obviously, How do you mean? Yeah, well, obviously I'm the boy who grew up in Glasgow and uh, having lost my mother, you know, a lot of Glasgow, I sort of was left behind for me. There was nothing there, you know, I lost my mother when I was in high school, Damien. And so um, I've been sort of on my own since I was 16. and. And when I made the really stupid decision to fall in love with an American, I've been in New York for 20 years. And so there's very, two very distinct halves to my life, right? Mm. And so part of sitting down and committing to writing Shuggy and really wanting to bring that forward was me sort of um, coming to terms with the boy I was and trying to bring him back into my life and hold him close to me. Mm. And 
So Shuggy for me was a pleasure. I think um, it feels in some ways, we said at the beginning, like in some senses, like a homecoming. I, I, when I was reading the book and knowing a bit about your story and you having, you having basically run away, you know, and now you're in this, in this book, you've written this book, you've chosen to put yourself back in that world. You've chosen to sit here and talk to me about it. You're, 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 you're going to get into the world and talk about it. So it feels, it feels in some senses like the, the, this fiction, which is autobiographical, but nevertheless is fiction, has allowed you to synthesize those parts of, of yourself. And people often talk about memoir as healing because they think, well, it's cathartic, it's true. But I actually think that writing fiction can be healing as well in a way that people just don't often talk about. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Um, um, it, it's absolutely healing because also there's a lot of wish fulfillment in it. And I think yeah. some people turning up and turning down some characters, making them slightly more arch or making them pathetic. Yeah. Um, you can resolve a lot of things that maybe are not so black and white in real life. Um, but you know, leaving Glasgow, I, was, I didn't run away as much as I was kind of just untethered. There was nothing, yeah. not having any parents. Um, there was nothing that sort of told me there. And so I was kind of blown away in a way, um, mm. I was set out on the wind a little bit and I'd never intended to not be there. It just, there was nothing to anchor me in place. Did, did, did you ever know who your dad was? I, I, I know who my father is, but I never knew him. Right. Yeah. There's, no con there's no contact there now. No, no, he, I think he's, he's been dead many, many years. Right, okay. Because I think the thing that's interesting, I went through this with Alan Cumming when he wrote his memoir and I launched his memoir was we were talking about, you know, when you write something, whether it's memoir or fiction, you, you're inviting people into your life um, in a sense. And I think, I think that with this book, you're definitely going to get, you're definitely going to get the ghosts. Yeah. Sure. Oh my God. It's, and it's terrifying in that way. It's such a form of self-exposure to yeah. sort of really take your feelings and sort of to place them in a book. And I have to be honest with you, I've been anxious for about six months. Um, the closer of course you have. Public, it's a natural thing, I think, for any writer. Um, but it's of course you have. <laughs> and also, uh, I'm not sure I could have written the book if I'd still have lived in Glasgow, Damien, because I think mm. there's something very true about the idea of Glaswegian men are not meant to talk about their feelings. Mm. Um, and I think we will talk about really ugly things very directly, but as soon as it veers into feelings, you're meant to sort of keep that to yourself and have a stoicism to you. Yeah. Being able to like get a little bit of distance to how I grew up was the thing that, and also wanting to get back to that was the thing that yeah. let me write the book. But I think if I'd still been in it, I don't know that I could have processed it. Mm. I think that's very hard, isn't it? I remember the very first therapist that I had was when I was a student at university in Texas. And, and she said, you know, your feelings, what you're describing, she said, imagine being, you know, face down on a, on a rug. And I was like, I can imagine that I've been there. And she said, um, you, know, you know, you can't see anything, but you stand up and you see that the rug is full of patterns and colors and you see how it all connects. And I think that for me, you know, moving to Brighton and having a life here um, has given, gave me the necessary perspective and falling in love with a man from England and having a very safe, stable life gave me the safe space from which to to write Maggie and me, and also from which to, to write You'll Be Safe Here, because although that's a novel and it's South Africa, and people might think that's very different, you know, you talked about wish fulfillment. I've put so much of my childhood and my life into that novel that I couldn't put into my memoir. And I think it's just all sitting right there and it's really obvious and people, you know, people, people mistake it for fiction, um, which I think is, is really interesting. And, you know, and for you, it's being in New York, 
and falling in love with an American and looking back all that way across the Atlantic um, and taking then what you need from your childhood. And I think that's a really healthy, brilliant place to be as a writer and as a person. Um, that's what you needed to be able to provide us with the novel. That's, it's absolutely true. And it, there's been a lot of healing as well in the book, but also an, an enormous amount of sort of bringing my own life full circle. Um, I actually wanted to be a writer as a young boy, but funnily enough, I went to, uh, I went to high school with uh, Darren McGarvey, who wrote Poverty Spy. Yeah, but yeah. So perceived as a thing in that high school. You know, my own education was so disrupted by my mother's uh, addiction, by the fact that I was doing everything I could to avoid bullies. Uh, yeah, I was being gay, and so my schooling was terrible. Um, but I, nevertheless, I wanted to be a writer. I came to books really late in life. And the sad reason why I came to books late in life is because the, I just didn't have the peace within myself or the peace outside in my environment before then to concentrate on a book. Mm. Um, and the high school I went to, you know, if 320 kids started, then only 12 were there for sort of higher education. So the school just winnowed out and suddenly it like, in 16, I could like look at a book. I just could concentrate for more than 15 minutes. And so I came to books far too late in life to fulfill my desire to be a writer. And instead, actually, I went into textiles, which is also a dream of mine and has done me incredibly well. But textiles was seen as a trade, um, mm. a very Scottish trade, right? The manufacturing and design of what can be more Scottish. Um, and so really writing Shuggy for me was a delayed thing that I had to do. It was something I've been dreaming of doing for such a long time. Mm. Um, also why I took so long with it actually, because I was just enjoying it. I, it was the writing that was important, not necessarily being a writer, if that makes sense. Oh no, that, that, make, that makes total sense. Um, that makes total sense. I mean, I will say to you, you could have done it in five years and then given us another book, another five years later. <laughs> so, a little bit selfish. Um, I'm not sure I entirely buy it, but um, I feel quite certain that there is, there is another book on its way. We'll come to that at the end. Um, I want to talk just a, a wee bit there about um, uh, reading. Um, as, a, as a gay Scottish man, um, did you feel, you know, uh, or when you were reading fiction, did you, did you often feel represented? Did you, ever, did you ever, you know, who were the writers that you looked at, Scottish writers or other writers, that made you think, oh, this is, this is, this is me, these are my feelings, this is what I want to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I never felt represented, but yeah. nothing to do, also to do with being gay and queer, but also sometimes just being Scottish. Yeah. Um, working yeah. Class on the West Coast of Scotland, it was a lot, it was really only when I became an adult and I could search out those books that I could see it because it's a shame that we don't sort of put the great Scottish writers in front of Scottish kids, you know? Um, yeah. And so you have to really go and search for it. But books that have been. But we do, it did, that has changed since, I mean, you know, Janice Galloway is on the curriculum now. Um, in Scotland, as far as I'm aware, um, and you know, obviously we should be as well. But um, you, to be here, you and I are hoping for Val McDermott to be a whole semester. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think that I, I think that it's interesting now. You know, looking Scotland's publishing scene is absolutely amazing. Scotland is, you know, we, there's a first minister who reads books and who celebrates books, and um, you know, it's not to say there isn't a lot more that could be done in Scotland because they're absolutely. Um, could be, but I think I think that that has changed. More voices are more voices are being heard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And every time I find or I discover Scottish books, I just feel so seen and so empowered. And mm. you know, I remember just the, 
about, it must be about 20 years, but discovering Alan Warner for the first time. Oh, yeah. Um, Robin Taller is one of my favorite books of all time, and These Demented Lands. It just suddenly spoke to me on every level. Where you said you felt my book had been written for you, that's how I feel about Alan Warner. You know, I, I, that is the connection. And then Agnes Owens um, has been. Oh, I love Agnes Owens. Why doesn't everybody know who Agnes Owens is? She's an incredible writer. Incredible writer. And if anyone's looking to get into it, I, I mean, she's very famous for um, Gentlemen of the West, but I love her short book for the love of Willie, which is also the funniest title. But actually, it's the best title ever. Book. <laughs> uh, for the love of Willie, try saying that with the straight. Exactly. Uh, but you know, I, I love her short story, the one that's set on the beach, and oh. the really scary one um, about the wee girl and the wee boy, um, and they're on the beach opposite Turnbury, the lighthouse, um, and terrible, terrible things happen um, on that beach. Her short stories are amazing. And wasn't she discovered by Liz Lockhead she was. in a creative writing class? Right, and James Kelman and Alistair Gray, and I think yeah. because she, you know, she was the true definition of a working class writer. She was yeah. a woman who was cleaning houses, I think, and had five kids. And only after the death of her youngest son, I believe, in some gang yeah. violence, did she sort of really sort of focus on her writing much, you know, very late in life. Um, but yeah, she, I mean, phenomenal. And what I love about Gentlemen of the West is it deals with sort of the hard industrial landscape of Glasgow, the same mm. as my but it's written from a, a woman's perspective, uh, from a mother's perspective. And she's looking at unemployment amongst young men with, uh, I think his name's, is his name Cal? It might be Cal. Mac. His name is Mac, the protagonist. Um, but you can tell she has it with all the empathy and sympathy and tenderness of a mother worrying about a son. It's a beautiful... No, she's, she's an, inc an incredible writer and I absolutely love her. I've got her collected story somewhere and I feel like the jacket has a woman swallowing a key on the cover. I feel right. like, um, but I do think that she's one of those writers that should be, should be much, much, much better known. Um, and she, she's incredible. You talked there about the landscape. Um, in in Shuggy, um, you take us to these places that, that will be so alien to so many readers, not, not just like readers outside of Glasgow, but readers who are from the posh bit of Glasgow, um, <laughs> or you know, never mind readers from Edinburgh, whose minds will be blown by the idea of a bang. You know, um, so you know, so you take us to the thing and you describe it as a petrified sea, um, and you know, Leek, uh, uh, Shuggy's brother, goes scrapping uh, in this big old factory. I mean, these industrial places um, are right at the heart of Glasgow and right at the heart of this story, aren't they? They are, and they're so close. Actually, it was a discussion often with my American agent and other people, just sort of understanding how the city is very industrial, and then you go outside and there are these mining communities of North Lanarkshire and then Nicholas Golf Course which is the fanciest place you've ever been in your life yes yes and, and so they just sit cheek by jowl in that way and it's but again because of sort of the limits of poverty and not being able to sort of explore more than the wee few streets you might know yeah. sometimes overlook each other very well you know the people living I grew up in a sort of coal mining town in Lanarkshire um, much like the characters do you know they're sort of almost marooned there in a way just as yeah. that closing down the colliery um, and the, the actual the actual uh, mining town pit head in the book is a is a fiction and it's yeah. turned all the way up in the sort of the style I was very inspired actually by the movies of Bill Douglas um, which is a very sort of dark sort of slag is blowing through the air it's very sort yeah. of um, but you know that's these ring Glasgow and so Glasgow just has all of these different layers to it
yeah no it's it was it was it was a sort of kind of industrial archaeology almost that we, that we were that we were going through and, and seeing that changing in in real time was was absolutely incredible and of course you know there's also the south side of Glasgow which which gets mentioned in there I see lots of people in the chat shouting there were lots of bangs in Fife as well nobody said there were it's fine <laughs> um you, you're allowed to have bangs in Fife that, that's all right um you mentioned your American editors there and I wondered um, how they go on with the language because I had this with with Maggie and me where they were saying well we think we might have to produce a glossary for American readers and I'm like do they really need a glossary you know so I don't think they do um, but you know there are so many uniquely brilliant Glaswegian 1980s words in there we've got Hochin, we've got Bism, we've got one of my all-time personal favorites who Maester <laughs> and a lot of hoors as well um, so um, how did you decide how to use Scots in the book first of all as a writer and what was that process like kind of negotiating that with an American editor? Uh, so the Scots I wanted to use in the book I just wrote it as exactly as I wanted it and so yeah. um, there's an interesting device in the book because uh, Agnes is a very vain woman and so although growing up within Glasgow she wants her family to speak better posher than they are um, and so it's an affectation it's a very sort of thin veneer of pride and so it's a nice thing to play with as a writer to contrast because of course you have the real Glaswegian and then you have this woman who is all for coat and no knickers right as the phrase goes, absolutely broke she is disintegrating through her addiction on the inside but she's immaculate she's uh, totally immaculate immaculate and so that's like a, just a really nice way to sort of highlight the the stupidity of it almost in a way and so um, it was nice to sort of work with dialogue in that way yeah. my I have to say the reception to it in America has been phenomenal Damien oh, you've had amazing reviews oh thank you um, but my editor is an incredibly brave man he's a very smart uh, brave editor and he saw the book and he um, didn't ask for any changes he understood it and there was a couple of times through the, the revision process where I cleaned myself up a little bit and he on it and he said no don't do that and he says, uh, go back and write it exactly as you would write it. And so he actually corrected me back to being truer to myself, uh, yeah. trying to make it slightly more accessible. But of, you know, um, yeah. That's interesting. It's that's that, that and, you know, thinking about the character, um, Shuggy, because we talked a lot about Angus, but thinking about that and thinking about Shuggy, that's a very Shuggy thing to do, to sort of try and, try and make, you know, Shuggy's hyper-responsible, and he's always trying to make himself clean and good and neat, not just for his mom, but for everybody around him. So he doesn't draw suspicion. So he doesn't bring attention to himself. And yet he can't stop bringing attention to himself by virtue of his complete fabulousness. Yeah. He's, and just, he's just so, he just stands out like a neat pin. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, a lot of that is from my own personal life, my inability to run with the other boys, like, which I would yeah. have loved. I would have loved to have been able to blend in. But, you know, Shug, the father, and Shuggy, the son, um, are both sort of interesting around Agnes because Agnes, as you had said, is uncontrollable. And mm. often someone suffering from addiction is that sort of chaos, you know, and that's yeah. what can be exhausting about it. Um, you never know quite what you're going to get, and you never know. You're forever sort of hedging and being a little bit of a sheepdog where you're trying to, you know, make the person okay and not make them tip over into into having a bad time i guess and so it exhausts shug her husband because shug is a manipulator and he is 
an incredibly controlling man, but it's also exhausting for Shuggy on the other side. And part of his sort of veneer of control, I think, is because he cannot control his mother. Mm. I've got some questions here um, from people who are with us. Um, and um, this is a question from Tig. I really love the book's depiction of a working class Glasgow childhood and a boy's struggle to find his place in the world. I wonder if Douglas has read The Changeling by Robin Jenkins. I recently have discovered this guy's reading rights work and I think there are similar themes. Have you read The Changeling yet? Not, but I will put it on. No, but now you will because Tig is a brilliant reader and it's a very good recommendation. I haven't either, Tig, um, so I'm going to do that. Um, This is a question from somebody called John. He says, Tunnock's Tea Cakes or Iron Brew? Iron Brew. Original. Iron Brew. Original. Do you know, isn't that hilarious that people have stocked up on crates of vintage Iron Brew? For those of you who are watching who don't know, I won't attempt to describe what Iron Brew is, but, um, but the Scottish government introduced a sugar tax, and so there was a, a version of it that was released, you know, that it does without the sugar, and so people have got like garages and lockups full of vintage Iron Very Brew. Yeah. Have you got some? I don't actually. You can send me some. I will send you some. I'll send you some. I'll track it down and send you some. There's a question from Jane. Was it difficult to decide on the structure? The protagonist isn't old enough to have his own voice until well into the story, and that's, that's a big challenge. Well, that'd be interesting to talk about. Yeah. It was... Uh, actually, the book overall of its iterations never, ever really changed structure. It came out um, in the 900-page version as it finished towards the end. Obviously, every single sentence changed a thousand times, Um, Of course. And there was an awful lot of editing. Um, But the structure itself never never actually changed. I always knew I wanted a... The book is bookmarked by looking at... You're introduced to the story by looking at Shuggy at 15. Get Shuggy at the start and Shuggy at the end. Shuggy at the start and Shuggy at the end. And that really is because I wanted to show the sort of the generational echoes of survival. And really, in a way, um, when you succumb to your addiction or when you... Uh, when you can't escape the circumstances you're in, you always have the hope for the generation after you, for your children to do better. And so Shuggy is the hopeful engine of the book in a way, even though he goes much with his mother. I hope you're left at the end of the book wondering, will he make it or won't he and where will he go? Um, And so the structure of the book had always sort of, had always been, had always been there. But it was one of the things one of my least favorite things to do sometimes is to write from the perspective of a very young child. Um, and so in a way, the device of Agnes, and as you had so beautifully explained earlier, Agnes is the planet, she is the sun, and the all orb under was a good way to do that because she is really the engine of the book. And mm. um, it's really about how she reacts to everybody. Yeah, she's a sun that becomes a black hole. Um, it's fair to say the star collapses. Um, a question uh, from Paul from Out on the Page, which is a, a brilliant group um, of LGBTQ plus uh, writers that supports and encourages LGBTQ plus writers. Amazing. And um, Paul asks, I'm sure there will be lots of working class writers watching right now. Have you got advice for them as they seek to write their stories or to get their voices heard? Great question. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Uh, I do. I mean, I think my advice would be is. We often, as writers, uh, place an awful lot of uh, emphasis on education and on being able to have access to those sort of networks. As a working class writer, you come, I imagine, with so much life and so much life experience that is so worthy of the page. And I always 
feel I don't have any writing experience. And it took me a long time and it took me 10 years and I had to refine and get better. And when I first began, actually, Shuggy, I was aping all of my idols. You know, I was trying to to be Cormac McCarthy and Toni Morrison and Alan Warner. And actually, when I stopped doing that is when the book uh, became my own book and when I sort of leaned into my strengths. But I don't have academic strengths in that sense. And so for working class writers, I would say is bring to the page what only you can, um, because the world actually needs it. Um, the rest of it is about getting it noticed, I think. But I would mm. commit it to the page um, as fearlessly as you can, as you can manage. Mm. I think and into how you're supposed to be as a writer, how you're meant to act and who you're meant to know and, you know, the school you're meant to have gone to and the retreat you're meant to have partaked in. And if that's not something you can access, then but that is so much of the world of publishing isn't it still i mean these barriers still need to be broken down and challenged and it's books like this that do that and you know like the anthology common people which kit deval edited which is an incredible collection and there are lots more you know there are other anthologies um available and i think i think that you know i remember when i went to my editors at bloomsbury with maggie and me and i was describing to them, you know, they were reading, you know, scenes of poverty and scenes of violence and, you know, that they were kind of appalled by and shocked by and they, you know, for them it was a sort of eye-opening experience and I wanted them to look beyond that to the writing and to the characters and to the story. But, you know, it was so hard for people initially, a lot of them to kind of get over that and I remember thinking, here's the thing, I've toned this down for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because I didn't want to upset you, nice middle-class people. Uh, but you know, there's also a process of education that you have to do, I think, as well as a working-class writer, um, because your experience is 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 seen as other um, or tertiary, you know, somehow secondary to the the normal experience, which is in publishing is middle-middle or upper-middle class. I agree, and also, it, I mean, I don't mean to infer that all working-class writers feel like this, but I had such an mm-hmm complex I just felt unwell oh, yeah and and part of why it took me 10 years to write it is first of all I had to prove to myself that I belonged and that I could come up with the goods um, I would have loved at any point to have been like I'm great and I can do this and have that sort of wind at my back but the wind always before me uh, in front of me and so yeah. sometimes as a working-class writer or a kid from a working-class background it'll just feel you're not conditioned to feel worthy in the room. You're not sort of like encouraging mm. them. You are, you are. And I think you can really bring forth stories that are so rare in the world and are underrepresented. And we need to hear those voices because behind you are also kids that never see themselves on the page. Um, and they're relying on you to, to sort of to do that. And I personally, I think because I have a very courageous editor, I'm now of the opinion where you should just do it full steam. And you're right in a way because some of even the Glaswegian things that happen in the book, I found Americans are like really horrified by it. And their reaction to it tells me much more about them than it tells me about the book. Because actually that's life and life isn't yeah. great all the time and people struggle and people yeah. And so, but they almost like look at me as like, how would you, why would you ever write that? Yeah. And I, and the question really is, is not why would you write that, but how do you not know a lot of people live like this? I think that's very powerful. And I think there's something in there as well about shame. 
and this is something that the book is brilliant on, you know, the reason Agnes goes out and she's always immaculate and holds her head high, you know, she's colored in the scratches on her black shoes with her big black bingo marker. Um, is that she doesn't want the world to look down on her, she doesn't want to be ashamed. And there is something in there, I think, about writing a working class story where there are some readers who read that, who kind of recoil from it and feel like maybe you should have not talked about that. You should maybe have kept it secret, maybe not wash your dirty washing in public. Totally. And that's, that's back to our initial conversation is I think if I stayed in Glasgow, I wouldn't have felt the emotional power to do that because I'm certainly conditioned to not air my dirty laundry in public and to not sort of share it or my feelings. You know, mm. I think that sometimes means to be a Northern man, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and so just being able to get some distance on that has been great for my art, you know, and for my mental health. Yes, yes, yes. And those things are so connected. A question from Uli at Gaze the Ward, one of our favorite bookshops in the world. Um, it's reopening for business soon. If you haven't been in, get in there, folks. It's brilliant. And also Category is Books, the other great gay bookshop in the UK, which is in Glasgow in the South Side. And this question from Uli is, I know this is a beyond pretentious question, but in terms of your personal writing style, has your background in textiles in any way influenced the way you wove your story together? I was going to ask that question, Uli. Thank you. For <laughs> Very good. Actually, I don't think that's pretentious at all, Uli. I think that's a beautiful question. Yeah, it has. It absolutely has. Because as I explained before, um, uh, I just wasn't seen as a kid that should be in literature or in the world. It just, and my teachers were incredibly encouraging, Damien. I don't want that to come across as a knock on schools. What they saw was a kid um, who, who wanted, just actually just had to survive, to be honest, had to sort of pay for himself and survive. And so they encouraged me towards where they thought I could flourish. And so it wasn't about saying I couldn't do it. It was about trying to get on my path. But when I first began to write, when I first began to write in my 30s, um, I was aping all of my idols. And I realized actually that I was terrible at that. And if that was how I wanted to do it, then I would just always be a very sort of like F list version of them. Mm. But actually, I have a really advanced visual language. Um, I've, I've spent 20 years sort of like thinking about how things look, explaining how they look, you know, sort of really creating evocative worlds for people. And that's mm -hmm. part of my fashion background. And so when I actually started to sort of realize what my strengths were is when the book started to be able to flow out of me. And I actually write often in a very visual way. I think very closely about sort of how people, what they're wearing, how, yeah. you know, position themselves. Um, and, you know, and that's really just me leaning into my strengths as a textile designer in a, in a way. Um, the book, we talked about the ending a little bit. I would like to know if there is more of Shuggy's story to come. Um, if we're going to find out what happens. I'm not going to do any spoilers, but I just want to know. I can leave it generally and say, is, is there more for Shuggy, um, you know, that, that we're going to get to hear about? Or is it all just going on in your head and you're going to take another 10 years to, to, to share it? <laughs> Well, I don't want to get myself or anybody into trouble. I don't think you're going to hear from Shuggy again. Okay. Um, I think Shuggy is, I wanted to leave you where I did with Shuggy because I actually wanted him to be yours, Damien. After being mine for so long, I wanted the concern for him to be yours or to be mm -hmm. the reader and sort of to leave him as someone in your life. I am working on my second novel, which will be a lot quicker than my first novel. In fact, I'm hopeful that it's almost finished. And it is again set in Glasgow, 
and it is again sort of focused on sort of sectarian violence. I want to go deeper into a lot of things as a writer. Um, there's a lot of things with Shaggy that I just felt like, oh, I got to, and I just want to really sort of go into it. But this, I'm hoping, will be a um, almost a love story between two teenage boys, Romeo and Juliet, meets deliverance, meets gang warfare. Uh, so there's more for me coming from me on Glasgow character, but not on Shaggy. Uh, what's it called? Have you got a working title? I do. It's called Loch It's called, say again? <laughs> You're the only person who's not allowed to say that. It's called Loch Oh, as in the Loch. Yeah, Loch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loch Oh, Loch Oh. All right. Okay, I got it. Yeah. It was just, it was, there, was a wee, there was a wee lag. No, I, I got it. No, Loch Oh. No, I got it. Lovely. Yeah. I'm well, very, very, very excited for it. When the book is about toxic masculinity, and so when uh, there's characters that take these young boys away into the wilderness of Scotland in order to teach them how to man up. Uh, and so this is where you start to get into. And I sort of brush on it a little bit in Shuggy because there's a scene in Shuggy where Agnes does something so uh, heartbreaking in order to try and get Shuggy some masculine. She sacrifices herself in a way, in a sexual way, just to get a father figure for Shuggy. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, I, I want to know more about that sort, of, that sort of thing and the expectations of men. And so Lockaw is about that. It's about yeah. it's. I'm very, very much looking forward to seeing that. Um, I'm very interested in it. And I, and I just, you, something about it just made me think of Alexander Cheese Edinburgh, um, which if you haven't read, I would encourage you to read that. It's the novel that how to write an autobiographical novel is about. And it's partly about, in a different way, men and leadership and boys and, and all of that sort of stuff. It's really interesting. That's something that I've written about too recently. Um, have we got any more questions from people? I'm just going to look and see. And Douglas, did you have any, any questions for them or for me? Well, um, not a question, but maybe a comment. I absolutely love You Will Be Safe Here. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. I'm reading it at the moment. It's a beautiful book. And you know how much Maggie and me meant to me as well. Um, and so actually I discovered it quite late um, and I'm kind of glad that I did because I would have been so intimidated by it. If I don't, <laughs> don't be daft. Shuggy. Um, but it's crazy. Um, we actually, actually, I Googled it and we grew up eight miles apart, Damien, you and I. We grew up eight miles apart. Here as the crow flies, yeah, because I was in North Lanarkshire, you were in Newark Hill, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God, so we were actually really not very very far apart at all. Um, God, eight miles though, in that place, in that time, it might as well have been, you know, a world, really. Um, so I was going out to Bennett's when I was sort of 15. Where <laughs> were you? What were you doing? You know, I never went to Bennett's. Um, you never went to Bennett's? I didn't often go to Bennett's, but I went to Club X a lot. Their sort of basement uh, nightclub, but that was more my scene. That means that you were cooler than me. Because <laughs> I was in the disco and you were in the club. I was in the club, yeah. <laughs> the club actually was my place. Um, but that's funny, we were contemporaries. It's really, I mean, it's amazing. It is amazing. I wonder if we were both in Santini's chip shop um, <laughs> at the end of the night asking for fish and chips and brown sauce and extra salt. <laughs> One Friday night and then I was like, so funny. That's absolutely brilliant. When I, when I was reading your novel, there's a character in there called Jinty, and it reminded me um, of Jinty, who was the very butch number 
um, who was the bouncer at Bennett's. And when I first went to Bennett's, when I was underage, I went in there with this guy and I said, oh, you know, you, the guy on the door liked you. Who, who was that? And he was like, that's not a guy. That's, that's Big Ginty. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> that was my first big butch lesbian. I was so excited. Um, yeah, absolutely bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. Yeah, that was a, it's a place and a time that I think is really rich. I'm sure there are more stories to come from there. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And it, it, Glasgow is such an incredible city because it just possesses the imagination in that way. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's why so much great writing comes out of that part of Scotland. But um, I can't stop, you know, obviously. Um, I'm pretty sure my American editor would love a big American book, but it's going to be another Scottish book. Good. Well, good. I'm very glad to hear that. Um, so I just want to say thank you to Douglas and to all of you for joining us um, from all around the world. Our next Salon Live is online from the, on the 7th of August from 8 till 9 p.m. And it's the world premiere of the new thriller from S.J. Watson, who wrote Before I Go to Sleep. It's called Final Cut, and it's about a filmmaker who's lured to a seemingly ordinary town called Blackwood Bay. And you can also catch past salons and new stuff from us on our YouTube channel. So if you just go onto YouTube and look at the salon, you'll find us and we're going to be adding loads more stuff there. Um, and you can find out all about us on our website, which is just www.militarysalon.co.uk. So I just want to say thank you to Team Salon and thank you, Douglas, for coming on tonight and opening your heart and reading to us and being so honest and just being so incredible. I absolutely loved the book. I can't wait to write the script for the film and I can't wait for your next novel for Lock Hall. It was gorgeous to see you. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much for joining Douglas and I to talk about Shuggy Bane. We've since talked about the book more at the Edinburgh Festival and you can catch that on their website. You can find out more about everything that we do here at Salon by visiting our website, which is www.theliterarysalon.co.uk. And you can find hundreds, literally, truly, actually, hundreds of other interviews between me and writers on our podcast, which you can find on Spotify and iTunes and all those places. Or you can check out our YouTube channel. And if that's not enough, well, there's me on the Big Scottish Book Club on BBC iPlayer. So I hope you enjoy that too. Thanks for stopping by. Stay safe.